1: This is The James Altucher Show on the Stansbury Radio Network.
0: This is James Altucher with The James Altucher Show. And I am really happy today because one of my favorite guests is on the show, Stephen Dubner, author of Freakonomics, Super Freakonomics, and now the brand new Think Like a Freak, Stephen, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, James. Thank you. You're one of my favorite people, too, just so you know.
0: Well, we've known each other for a really long time. How long have we known each other? It's been about 12 years now, almost to the um, day.
2: I think so. I think I I remember... So I met you because I was wanting to write about you as a subject in this book that I called... Like, working title was called something... It was about the psychology of money, and so you um, were this fascinating guy who had a contorted, interesting relationship with money generally. So
1: we still started contorted. hanging out and I
2: would interview you for hours and we started to play backgammon, et cetera. Et cetera. And then um, eventually I put that book in a drawer, even though I wrote a couple chapters, including one that included you. And, and I put that book in a drawer because Freakonomics kind of happened instead. So it's still in a drawer.
0: Well, it's a really good thing Freakonomics happened instead, probably for both of us.
2: I don't know about for you, for me, for sure, though, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I would have liked to write that other book, and I still fantasize about it sometimes, and a lot of the ideas that were, you know, kind of behind that book have gone into a lot of the Freakonomics writing and radio I've done since then, but um, I'm still fascinated by how how much emotion and uh lack of rationality and kind of religious and sexual fervor is attached to money um and and misunderstood so like i said i still like that idea
0: well you know maybe maybe one day in the in the future but today is all about think like a freak although i want to i want to bring up one memory i have and this is like a decade ago it was the day or two before Freakonomics was going to be released and you and I were meeting for our regular backgammon session of which we still, I think we're still in the same match 10 years later, <laughs> uh-huh. but we were meeting and, uh, you know, towards the end, I really, I, I almost visually remember like your, your hands were holding your head and you were like, you know, what if we what if this next book Freakonomics doesn't really work out for me? Like, I don't know if it's going to work out. Like, you're really unsure. And I had read an advanced copy of the book, and I told you, you know, no, don't worry. This is, like, a guaranteed bestseller. But I'll be honest right now. Like, I I didn't know. I was just trying to be nice. Like, nobody really <laughs> knows what's going to be a bestseller or not. And then you called me up a few days later, and you were like, check, check Amazon for the economics rank. And I thought, okay, this is going to be cool. Like, maybe he's number 1,000 or number 2,000. And I looked at, at it and you were number two. Like Harry Potter was the only book ahead of you. And, that, and, and you're like still number two. Like Freakonomics is still like one of the top selling nonfiction books uh, a decade later. Like there's no way you could have predicted that. Like what, what was your first feelings when you realized, man, this is beyond me now. Like, like no book in the past decade, I think, nonfiction has sold as much as Freakonomics.
2: Well, um, I'm not sure that's true, although it's kind of hard to figure out, believe it or not, because the publishing industry is so weird. But, yeah, no, it was um, it was a total, total surprise. So I guess I would say, you know, you, you're right. You know, every writer, as you know, as a lot of people listening to this know, whenever you write something or, you know, produce something, what, what, whether it's a creative work or a product or whatever – you know, you invest so much of yourself in it, both your sweat equity and your emotions and your money and so on, that you kind of, you become super biased um, in favor of its success. So there are many different versions of this. You know, one, one that we write a little bit about in, in Think Like a Freak is this thing called Go Fever, which comes from <clears throat> from NASA terminology where, you know, once you've decided that you're going to go on a project – you kind of get feverish about it, but moreover, you convince yourself that it's, you know, awesomer than anything that's ever come before. So I think most writers, you know, vacillate between feeling of intense pride and superiority and intense self flagellation and doubt, where you think, you know, I've just wasted three or four years of my time. And, you know, you, you just don't know. You just have no idea. I remember at the time that Freakonomics came out, um, I, I had worked at the New York Times Magazine. And my boss there, uh, the top editor, Adam Moss, had recently moved to New York Magazine. And um, he had asked me to kind of help him a little bit, staffing up New York Magazine. And I was playing around with the idea of maybe going back there as an editor, because I just didn't know if, you know, book writing was going to happen. And um, I wasn't, you know desperately sad about that idea. I really liked him, and I liked working at magazines, but I really did, you know, I quit the New York Times in order to write books, and this was now my third book for economics was, and the, my first one had done pretty well, but, you know, in, this, in the scheme of things, so-so. Second one had done less good, and now I really did kind of see this as like, you know, I really hope this one works, because I would like to continue writing books, and I remember the day that we got the news um, from the publisher because they they did have pretty good numbers early on that it was going to enter the New York Times list the bestseller list at number five or something I, I just could not believe I could you know I just I could not believe that was me that was going to be attached to a book that was on the Times bestseller list and um, you know it was full of people who somehow I thought were made of a different stuff from me and it's interesting to look back because now you know we've been there a long time and it's easy to sort of take that for granted, but um, I I certainly did not see it coming. The only only argument I would say of people who maybe did see it coming was our publisher. You know, they paid me and Leva a pretty good book advance. And, of course, you know, in an industry like that, a lot of people make wrong bets all the time. People spend, you know, publishers spend $3 million on some celebrity memoir that ends up selling 50,000 copies. That happens all the time. But they plainly had a fair amount of confidence in us based on uh, an article about Steve Levitt and his work I'd written in the Times Magazine. So in retrospect, I would say that they were probably, you know, a little bit less surprised than we were. But I, I will tell you, I wouldn't trade the surprise or anything. It was a great um, treat. And, you know, the biggest thing for me is I got to keep being a writer. And that's, um, you know, that's the biggest reward.
0: Well, it's it's really exciting, and now I don't know if you can say, but altogether between Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, how many books do you think have sold around the world between the two books? Uh,
2: so yeah, it's a it's a pretty hard number to get for a variety of reasons, but I I think the best um, a pretty good estimate would be about six million.
0: Wow, that is so great! Congratulations. Um, so I want to get into Think Like a Freak, which I think is just. Probably it could be the best book of all of them, just because it, it it gives practical advice how to think like you guys how to solve problems from a free economics perspective but first, i want to um one more thing on free economics i 've been really i 've really done a lot of thought about why free economics probably did become a bestseller because there's been many good books published since then and a lot of books that have controversial problems that they solve and problems that they solve in interesting ways, but I think it 's the unique combination of how you write, how Levitt thinks, how you guys think like a freak, and so on. But I, So I have this list of five, and I just wanted to run them by you about what me. you thought. And yep. what, the first thing on my list is you're really good at not only presenting the science, but you take the scientist, and it's sort of like you give his secret origin. Like you give his background, <laughs> like what happened to him as a kid or as a student or as a young adult that made him so offbeat that he would think of a problem in such a weird way. So I call this the secret origin strategy that I think writers, in particular of nonfiction, should do.
2: So first of all, thanks for noticing, because, you know, honestly, most people, when they ask you about the books, they just ask about content and not the process. And they don't realize that the process is what makes the content either work or not work. So, I mean, I I just firmly believe in that. I, I think that writing, like a lot of other things, you know, um, you know, computer science or cooking, you know, there are a lot of things where when you're consuming something, you shouldn't really be thinking about the process. That's not your job, you know, but if the software works, if the food is good, if the book is good, you know, somebody did their job, but there's a lot that goes into doing all those different jobs. And, you know, that's, I, that's why I love writing. I love, I love kind of figuring out all those components and you know, probably nine out of ten words that I'll write in the given course of writing a book get thrown out. You know, it's a it's a very labor intensive thing. In terms of the secret origin idea, um, I guess that's just you know my personal preference for it, and that probably just comes from still thinking a lot like a kid. And when you're a kid, what I read a lot were biographies, and there's just something unbelievably fun in a buried treasure kind of way when you're a kid you read a biography of someone whether it's a sports person or a president or whatever and you already know the whole patina of the reputation and the accomplishments and reading that biography is a way to kind of reverse engineer to figure out what kind of person became what kind of kid became that person and what were the you know the 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 upsides the downsides the struggles the choices the you know, the the obvious things they did, the not obvious things they did. And then, you know, when you do that, it's really important to remember that you're dealing with an anomaly. Like, almost anybody who becomes very, 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 very accomplished is pretty anomalous. They are better or different than most people around them because most people don't become that. So I think that's an important thing is to consider the ways not only in which they're interesting, but in which they're maybe not representative. But I think there's a lot to be learned from what is um, not representative about them. So I do like that, but I also I think the broader point you raise is just that I like narrative storytelling. So I think ideas are where it's at. Uh, when you write a book, that's the real value. But I think that for an idea to come alive in the mind of a reader, it needs to be, or I shouldn't say it needs to be, but from my perspective, it is good to embed that idea in a narrative. So and, and, the- and, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, that
0: that really is a big difference between, let's say, Freakonomics and many other popular science books, where they'll get right into the science um, and they'll forget to tell a story. And this works, too, with entrepreneurship. You know, there's... Yeah. um many examples where if you tell a story around your product that's going to do much better you know, like Zappos for instance has this and you mentioned this and think like a freak has this incredible story around their customer service and how they treat their employees and how they treat their customers and that's how build the Zappos brand
2: yeah I and I I do think that kind of that secret is out now which I think is great like the power of storytelling and we actually do talk about that the power of storytelling and think like a freak as well and you know you have to be careful look not all stories are true and it's easy to deceive people with a good story the best um so the best writing like you know people are always asking about how you learn writing and how much can be learned and blah 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 and i could go on for months about that which i won't So I've been writing since I was a kid, basically. My dad was a newspaper man, and in my family, we just everybody kind of wrote something all the time. We even had this little family newspaper. So I'd finished my first year of graduate school, and and it was okay, but I I didn't think I was going to come back for my second because it was really expensive, and I didn't know if it was really working for me. But I had this opportunity to apply for a teaching fellowship at Columbia. And if I got it, um, I would teach one course of freshman comp, And I would get a total free tuition plus a stipend. So it was an amazing financial deal. So I kind of put everything I had into applying for that fellowship. And I ended up getting it. And I was over the moon because it meant, you know, I I could stay in school and not go deep, deep, deep into debt. What I didn't realize was that teaching that class would actually be the best um, experience for me as a writer that I would ever have, and the reason why is this is a course that had been at Columbia for many, many, many years. I think it's gone now. I think they got rid of it. I think it, it was considered, I think the, the students students, and the parents thought it was like too much work and too hard or something, although I'm not sure on that, but it was a course called Logic and Rhetoric, and it was standard freshman comp, part of the core curriculum at Columbia. And what was great about it is it treated writing in, the kind of, in this very old Greek model that any time you want to communicate, whether it's writing a speech, whatever, there are these two pillars that are not necessarily equal, but incredibly important. The logic is all the facts, all the pieces of the argument that add up to what you're trying to articulate. And there's the rhetoric, which is how you tell the story, who's telling the story, the pace, the tension, the timing, and so on. And in my view, I really came to believe then that in order for a piece of writing to be successful, you have to be really good at both the logic and the rhetoric. So there are a lot of brilliant people in academia and elsewhere whose logic is maybe uh, perfect, but whose rhetoric, for whatever reason, doesn't connect. And there are a lot of people who have fantastic rhetoric. They live on TV, and they go on and on and on and on with these stories and opinions but their logic is not very defensible. And so to me, that's the, the very basic model that I think any writer should try to follow to some degree, but I, w- I would say it goes beyond writing. I think it goes into entrepreneurship, it goes into business, it goes into politics. Politics is, to me, the place where, you know, the, the, the rhetoric to logic um, ratio is probably the, the largest, unfortunately. But that's, um, that was, to me, kind of light, the light bulb going off, and ever since then I've been just trying to execute that idea.
0: And, and it seems like it's not like these are two separate pillars because you interweave them. So, for instance, in in both in both books, and I'm sure in Think, in think Like a Freak, you create a lot of controversy. Like Super Freakonomics, you had the controversy over global warming, and you had the controversy over completely revealing or revealing most of the algorithm for how you track terrorists. And you discuss that again in Think Think Like a Freak. So, so that's an interweaving of the story with the science, with the facts. And it's this sort of controversy, I think, that that propelled the books a little bit. Like, every book had something where it was an argument. Like, people can argue in a bar about what you bring up in
2: the book. I guess so. It's funny, you know, we... uh, I think people don't believe us when we say this, but, um, but I'm pretty sure it's true, or at least mostly true, which is that I don't think we've ever really decided to write about something because it would seem to be controversial or to not write about something because it would be controversial either, I'd say. But I think it's as simple as this. You know, neither Levitt nor I have a huge appetite in doing the stuff and following the topics and ideas that a whole lot of other people are already following, because, you know, if you're in the realm of politics or business or even sports or religion, you know, there are tons and tons and tons of people writing about everything all the time. And, you know, most of it is pretty predictable. Um, it's not to say it's bad. It can often be great. But we don't really write about a topic unless it's a topic, a topic or an idea related to it that really hasn't been out there before. So I guess that's inherently going to lead to some controversy, but it's only because we're trying to say something new. So, you know, well, people are always asking us to... Um, You know, probably nine out of ten emails we get of people asking us to address a question or solve a problem are are, are questions or problems that, you know, hundreds and thousands of people are working on. Income inequality and raising the – a lot of stuff having to do with real economics, which we also, by the way, don't really do that much. And our view is that, like, you know, we probably just don't have anything meaningful to add to that. And if you look at the topics that we write about in, like, think like a freak, you know, you can understand why people – don't want to, you know, spend months doing research on ridiculous stuff like, you know, we tell hot this in-depth in, in story about, yeah, hot competitive hot dog eating and Although that was fascinating. how an ulcer is called, you know, but it's stuff that turns us on. And so hopefully, you know, if we throw ourselves into it, people will, will get interested when they read it.
0: But, Stephen, I will quote specifically from Think Like a Freak. One of the ways to think like a freak, and this again applies very strongly to business and just as strongly to writing, you say specifically, the conventional wisdom is often wrong, and a blithe acceptance of it can lead to sloppy, wasteful, or even dangerous outcomes. So this is incredibly true for entrepreneurship. It's incredibly true if you're an employee of a business, and it's incredibly true in writing. So you talk about, in Freakonomics, the first book, you talk about uh, the reasons why crime went down in ninety and you came with a startling conclusion. Then in super Freakonomics, you talk about global warming and you basically say the conventional wisdom is often wrong and you discuss the science of what's going on with, with global warming. And then in Think Like a Freak, you kind of turn super freak economics upside down when you discuss the whole terrorism issue and how you basically helped Stop or or how you helped identify terrorists in Britain in this way that was completely unconventional. So it not only helps with the writing; it helps with real world problems. But it's going to be by nature controversial. Like they even like tried to block you in in, in England to some extent.
2: Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, um, I think that the the thing that the thing is, we'll sometimes write something that we think might agitate people in some direction and then it doesn't and then you'll write something else that we think is you know, unsurprising or unagitating at all and people get very distraught about it and I think this all has to do with how hard it is to predict the future generally which we write about a lot in this book too. Well, not, not only
0: predict the future but also there's a cognitive bias which you already mentioned that yeah. if you do something you're going you're gonna to think it's great. So, so everybody who does research on a particular scientific subject and comes to a conclusion is going to think, is going to have a cognitive bias that they are correct, more so than if somebody has done no research on it. And it's very hard to overcome that cognitive bias.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, look, I, I have kind of um, polar, polar views on the idea of, like, let's say, it's, let's say we want to talk about it as conventional wisdom. So on the one hand, you think, wouldn't it be great if everybody could approach every question or topic with sort of a blank slate, they could bring, you know, let's say it's a business proposition. You could bring all your knowledge and experience to bear, but none of your biases or conclusions. And you think, wouldn't that be great? And that's kind of what we advocate in Think Like a Freak, Although, and, and we give a lot of steps to try to, to figure out how to do that, although we admit that it's not always easy and it won't always make you popular. But then on the other hand, let me argue against myself for a minute, I would say that all these shortcuts and heuristics, these mental shortcuts that we engage in all the time, and all the conventional wisdom that we do accept, you know, I certainly empathize with it, because if you tried to spend your entire day making every decision based on your own assessment of the reality and the facts and the incentives, you'd be paralyzed. You'd never do anything with your life. Right, so this is almost
0: like the brain's way... Of, of conserving energy, like, okay, I've got a bias, and I'm going to stick with it, because now I can move on to other things. I make a decision that's probably 99% correct in most cases, and I'm going to move on to other things.
2: Right. The problem is, and, and this was one of the really interesting things um, that we discovered, is that when you come to, like let's say, the hot-button issues of the day, whether you want to talk about climate change and what should be done about it, nuclear power, gun control, you know, uh, the HPV vaccine, all, all these topics that get people really agitated and that produce a big schism. It turns out that especially on topics like those, the smarter that a person is, the more likely he or she is to, to hold a rather extreme view on that, not necessarily positive or negative, but extreme. So some will be extreme positive and some will be extreme negative. And you say to that, So my first response to that was, well, that's really surprising. You would think that people who are really educated and maybe experienced would be more, quote, enlightened. And enlightenment, we kind of have told ourselves for, you know, centuries, leads to moderation. That's kind of the idea. But as it turns out, the better, the smarter someone is, generally, it seems that they get kind of more confident as well in how smart they are and how right they are. And so they're more convinced that they're right. So I think that's a huge... Issue, Which is that when people are smart and accomplished and really good at something, it's easy for them to assume that their ideas about anything will be better than average. And that's just demonstrably not true. So I think that's a huge trap to watch out for.
0: Well, you know, and the, the very first thing you mention in Think Like a Freak in terms of how to think like a freak, and this is something you explore in Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, and, and you say this in Think Like a Freak, incentives are the cornerstone of modern life. So essentially, we as humans, on the whole, do things out of self-interest. And this is something um, you know that's been repeated many times in marketing literature and also in libertarian literature, like Harry Brown's book... Um, you know how I live free in a unfree world. Uh, he basically says that all action is out of self-interest, and this is not necessarily something that's selfish. Although it sounds like it, it's just that's the way people are. And so you have to figure out the right incentives uh, if you want to get people to do things. And I remember uh, in Super Free Economics you had the great chapter on you know uh, incentivizing uh, chimpanzees with sex and so on. It was it was very funny. Prostitution among chimpanzees. And, uh, so, so what, what other examples like that you talk about? I think like a freak, um, if I want to think like a freak, how, how should I make use of this incentives are the cornerstone of modern life?
2: Yeah. So it's really, um, easy and popular, I would say to argue that moral incentives are paramount in modern society. In other words, there's a, there's a kind of baseline assumption or maybe a hope that people will do the right thing or the pro social thing because it is the right thing or the pro social thing. And I think in a perfect world, um, you know, a lot of us would like that to happen. Um, but the evidence suggests that that just isn't so. Um, the evidence suggests that if you ask people whether they would like to do a certain behavior, behavior A versus B, you know, conserve energy because, let's say, it's good for the environment or conserve energy because it will lead leave the planet in a better shape for their grandchildren, they'll say, yes, that's exactly why I would like to conserve energy. Um, if you ask them, would you like to conserve energy because it'll save you money? People say, well, you know, that might be okay, but the environment's more expensive. And then if you ask them, would you like to conserve energy because other people in your neighborhood are conserving energy? They'll say, well, no, I, I you know, I'm not a Pack animal. That's that's not what makes me behave the way I behave. I don't behave. I behave the way I behave because the way I think is right and and true and so on. So that's what people say when you ask them about behaviors. They they claim that the moral or social incentives are among the most powerful. In this case, with energy consumption, more powerful than financial, and certainly more powerful than a herd mentality incentive. However when you try to find some real data or generate some real data, and in this case, I'm talking about some research done by the the wonderful um, psychologist, Robert Cialdini and some colleagues in California, they did exactly this. They did a phone survey, first of all, in California, asking people what would lead them to use fans in summer more than air conditioning. And again, they gave them the options of moral and social incentives versus financial versus herd mentality. And the overwhelming choice, Most popular was moral incentive, social incentive. That's what's going to make us act or change our behavior. But then, okay, so that's what economists call your declared preferences, what you say is true or what you say you'll do, how you'll say you'll behave or invest or vote or whatnot. But then you get into revealed preferences, and that's what people actually do. So in some cases in life, there isn't much gap between declared preferences and revealed preferences. So voting, for instance polling on voting, on, on big elections, has gotten much, much, much better over the years because pollsters have gotten really good at figuring out how to limit the gap between what people say they'll do and, and how they'll vote by asking better questions, getting better data, um, zeroing in on the right people to ask the questions of, and so on. But there are some realms in life where the gap between declared and revealed preferences is huge. And one of them, is Cialdini and his colleagues found, was in energy consumption. So people say they want to use less energy because of the environment, because it's good for the environment. But what it turns out, when you then deliver um, messages, they went into the, these neighborhoods and hung up signs on every house. But there were, many, there were different versions of the signs. So this was designed as an experiment. And some said, hey, homeowner, you should use less, energy. you should use fans in summer more because it's good for the environment. And, and so many fewer tons of greenhouse gases will be emitted if you do that. Others said, hey, homeowner, you should use less energy because you'll save some money on your bill. And others said, hey, homeowner, you should use less electricity, you should use fans this summer because other people in your neighborhood are going to think about doing the same thing, the herd mentality. And as it turns out, the only one of those suggested, suggested incentives that changed, that lowered energy consumption was the herd mentality one. So people on the phone survey say, yeah, I will use less electricity because it's good for the planet, good for future generations, and so on, and or maybe I'll save a little money. But when it comes time to actual action, revealed preferences, the one that worked was, crazily enough, the herd mentality. Now, none of us would want to admit that we act as we do, that we make decisions as we do because, quote, everybody else is doing it, but there's a lot of evidence in – various realms of science that suggest that's exactly true
0: now but you, but you know also it's not just the herd mentality um, it's this idea of social proof so you might say to yourselves well uh, I, I, I live in this neighborhood so I like all my neighbors or I think that they're smart or whatever because they're doing the same thing I'm doing and uh, so since they're doing this I should be doing it it's social proof and that's a common uh, or, or maybe not so common but it's a, it's a marketing technique that many businesses use
2: yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense, yeah. So so but it is interesting though
0: because you do say and think like a freak, another way to think like a freak is knowing what to measure and how to measure it. So so not just sprints and doing a poll, but coming up with other ways of measuring something that might not be so obvious on how to measure it. And and you do this throughout all of your books.
2: Yeah, that's a, I mean this is this is um how do you uh, learn how to measure something? Uh, obviously, academia and the social sciences, but just as common within the business world where, you know, many people for, you know, the, the earliest days of management consulting were really about, yeah, you guys have a bunch of dogma, but uh, do you have any evidence that it actually works? Now, the problem is in the business community, even though measurement is considered an extremely valuable tool, um, the business community is not necessarily – so well-trained or, I would argue, incentivized to measure what they often should be measuring. So I'll, I'll give you, a for instance, um, we write a story in Think Like a Freak about a company. So my, my co-author, Steve Levitt, before he became an academic, he was in consulting for a couple of years, and then he went to get his Ph.D., and he, he stayed in academics, but now he's doing consulting again, and he started this firm called The Greatest Good, or TGG. And one firm wanted uh, to know what to do exactly to optimize the hundreds of millions of dollars it was spending annually on advertising, okay? So it was spending a lot of money on TV advertising and on print advertising in Sunday newspapers. And they had already had an analysis done that persuaded them that their TV advertising, while much more expensive, returned four times on the dollar, what the newspaper advertising did. So when asked how they knew this, they took out this analysis that some economic consultants had provided for them. And it showed that indeed, whenever they ran TV ads, there was this huge spike in sales that in their mind accounted to a four times return on ROI versus the newspaper advertising. So then, however, when asked, um, what is your schedule for this TV advertising? Do you advertise weekly? Is it monthly? What markets and so on? They said, well, you know, because TV advertising is so incredibly expensive, we only do it three times a year. Black Friday, right after Thanksgiving, uh, right before Christmas, and then Father's Day. So we said, well, given what you sell, um, how do those periods, um, are those significant boom periods for your product? They said, oh, yeah, this is when people buy. So we said, wait a minute. So you're saying that you are spending hundreds of million dollars to advert to tell people to go buy your stuff at exactly the same time that hundreds of millions of people are already getting ready to go shopping to buy exactly the kind of stuff you want to sell. And they said, well, yeah. So we said, well, how do you know that you wouldn't sell as much as you sell now without spending all that money on TV ads? And the fact is they didn't know. So then we asked them about their newspaper advertising. They did that every week in every market. In America where they sold so again no variation no way to really measure the efficacy of it so they they we suggested to them that they run an experiment they say we said what if you could peel off let's say out of your 250 markets peel off 40 markets and randomize them and have a control group where you keep advertising every Sunday as you do in the newspapers and the other group where you stop advertising you go totally dark for three months and that would give us some data to know the efficacy we could measure the rate of the we could we could measure sales versus advertising or lack thereof as basic as that and they said oh god no we can't do that we'd get fired the head of marketing would kill us the ceo no, there's just no way this is part of what we do we said how will you ever find out how effective it is if you can't adequately measure it so they said wow well, you know the that would be terrible if we went dark. There was this one intern in Pittsburgh. You remember what he did? And we said, no. What did, what did, what did he do? We asked. It turned out there was this one like, intern who was a recent MBA whose job was to buy, to call the papers, whatever, make the media buys, and he screwed up. And so in one market for most of the summer, there were no ad uh, inserts. So we said, well, that's that's great. that's a fantastic. it's small, but it's a great little accidental experiment. So what happened to sales then in that market during that summer? And they said, "Wow, we never you know we were just so desperate to cover up this idiocy that we never actually looked at the numbers." So then they went and looked at the numbers. Turns out their sales had not decreased at all, even though for the whole summer in this one market. They didn't advertise. So we said, well that's a you know, this is not definitive, but it would certainly give ammunition to want to do this broader experiment of taking these forty markets and randomizing. So so we were sure then that they would say, Oh yeah, let's do that experiment. That's great. We understand now that if we can measure it, we can, you know, figure out what to do. But they still were ex- had no interest in doing that experiment. And so this is one of the big arguments we make in in, in Think Like a Freak, which is that People love to pretend they know the answers when they don't. Out of you know ego and job preservation, all the obvious answers. But, but our argument like, is he, that this seems like you something so obvious. Like why, why
0: didn't they listen to you after, after you showed up such an obvious thing? Two obvious things. The, the, the of course sales are going to go up when they do TV advertising around Black Friday. And the second thing, which is that the, the one time you didn't do advertising in print. Your sales stayed the same. Why didn't they, that's so obvious, why didn't they listen to that?
2: So I think there are a couple reasons. One is that, you know, conventional wisdom is strong. So conventional wisdom says that TV advertising is really effective. And where that comes from is a number of sources, including, of course, the industry that sells TV advertising. I think the other reason that they didn't listen is because they're living in an ecosystem, this big firm that's got divisions that exist only to execute this plan. So they have a marketing and ad division that if they did not have this work to do, they would literally have no reason to exist. So to even suggest that what this money is being spent on and the effort that these people are putting into something is is perhaps not as valuable as one might think, is to suggest that people are not as good as they might think. And I understand that. certainly understand the human incentives involved there, but that doesn't mean it's the right answer from a financial standpoint. And look, maybe you want to be a company that wastes 30% of your money on stuff that doesn't give return because it provides jobs. Now, you know, there are some companies like that. They tend to go out of business, but, you know, to to each his own. Well,
0: uh, you know, A lot of this is related to another thing you point out in How to Think Like a Freak, which is I've suffered from this in a huge way, this bias. Uh, You say just because you're great at something doesn't mean you're good at everything. So I remember when I sold my first business in the late 90s, I suddenly thought I was a genius at everything. And, of course, it was that... uh, almost problem with my thinking that caused me to lose all of my money, to lose basically everything, home, money, family, everything. And you say even, unfortunately, this fact is routinely ignored by those who engage in it. And you give it a name. I had never heard this word before. uh, Ultra-crepidarianism, the habit of giving opinions and advice on matters outside of one's knowledge or competence. So how do you avoid, if I want to think like a freak, how do I avoid this bias?
2: Oh, uh, honestly, I think this is among the easiest biases to avoid because, you know, I you think this is something that the a minute you look in it in the face, the time. it's very, very easy to see. So, you know, there's been some experimentation done. I mean, this is, you know, kind of small academic experiments, but it proves the point. You take um, people who are very, very good, you know, there's been some work done with chess players, for instance. You may know this research. If you ask, and you know about a hundred times more about chess than I do, so I may I may express this wrong. If you take great chess players and ask them to look at a game in progress, I ask them to look at a board, and then recreate and then look away and recreate the setup, that's a pretty simple thing for them to do. Then you ask them to um, take a look at a nonsense board, a board set up in a way that no game could ever really be played, and ask them to reproduce that. They can't do that, because what we think of is this power of whatever, memory or cognitive organization, is in fact this muscle that you've developed from playing this game over and over again and understanding patterns that are real. If you, if you go, you know, Levitt, uh, and I helped a little bit on this years ago, we did something with taking poker players who need to randomize well. They need to randomize bluffing, they need to randomize betting, et cetera, et cetera. You take them and you look at their ability to randomize while in their domain, poker, and then ask them to randomize in a very, I would argue, very related, but slightly different domain, which is rock, paper, scissors. So we actually did this experiment out in Vegas during the World Series of Poker when all the poker players were there, and they also hold this um, fun rock, paper, scissors um, uh, tournament. It turns out that when it comes to rock, paper, scissors and other related, you know, Intentional randomization games they 're just not very good, so I think if you can be not very good at something that 's so close to your own domain it 's really easy to persuade yourself that you have no reason to expect that you 're going to be really good at something that 's unrelated. so I think you see this with you know doctors have been famous for having this sort of God complex within medicine that they try to transfer over to non medical realms. You see this with business people, you certainly see it with politicians, and to me this is once you, like, realize this problem, if you have it, it's pretty easy to self-correct.
0: Well, you know, and, and you, again, you say this in the book, it requires someone to say, I don't know. And I think these are three incredibly valuable words for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, one thing you point out... Is you, you look at two different um, research studies, one's about political pundits who make predictions, the other is about financial pundits who make predictions. Uh, I actually probably was included even in that second study. and uh, the financial pundits were correct on their predictions only forty seven percent of the time, which is you know worse than you know fifty percent. like these guys just don't know anything. You could throw darts at uh, uh, The Wall Street Journal and pick better companies. So, so I think for people to just say, to practice saying, I don't know, and, and have that kind of state of mind, like, oh, this bears further thinking, particularly when an issue is important, I think that's a very important part of thinking like a freak.
2: Yeah, I mean, to us, this is, you know, kind of step one. Uh to thinking like a freak or, you know whatever you want to call it just to being a little bit better at what you do is you know learning the difference between what you know and what you don't know and and look you know i'll be honest it's easy for us to say this levitt and I, because what we do for a living is try to find out stuff right so i as a writer i'll get interested in something and then try to find people who know a lot about it and if it's a complicated scenario like trying to really understand cause and effect where what we, quote, know is not as simple as just aggregating a set of facts, then it becomes this, ex- this journey of exploration and getting feedback and experimentation and so on. Levitt is in academia. You don't have a job unless you have some good questions that haven't been answered. That's the whole point, at least in, in academic economics, is to try to answer quest- ask questions that haven't been asked yet and try to find good data that will help you answer them. So it's easy for us to say this, but out in the real world, not in writing and not in academia, you know, people's reputations are on the line. So people who work at firms, whether you know, if you're if you're a startup pitching yourself to you know VC guys or the VC guys hearing the pitch, you know, there's I, I totally understand all the ego and the cognitive biases that that conspire to assume that you know the way things will work out. What does what 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 effects have been caused by what causes but the fact is that there's a, we we know a lot less than we do and once you start once you stop admitting what you don't know you also stop gathering good feedback whether it's data or otherwise you also stop experimenting which is a fantastic and usually really cheap way and we make the argument that you know experimentation, bench science, experimentation has been the foundation of the hard sciences for for centuries. And businesses, we argue, and certainly in politics is too, is just kind of leery of experimentation for a variety of reasons. But one of the biggest is that it requires someone to admit that they don't know the answer. So, you know, every time there's a horrible spree shooting at a school or whatever, you've got thousands of people standing up on both sides of uh, on all sides of the issue saying, well, if you only did this, that would improve. And then you ask for their proof and you look at their evidence and you see what the argument is and you realize that they have no idea what it is. They have no idea if it's true, but there's this assumption that they do know. And when you make that assumption, you stop actually trying to use, to to embark on creative ways to gather feedback and experiment and find out. So that's our argument is that, you know, people should be much more willing to admit what they don't know because that's the best way to actually figure stuff out.
0: And and this is related to your chapter uh, again in Think Like a Freak called Think Like a Child in that children often will their incentive is to do what's fun as opposed to what society tells them to do. So they'd rather, p- they'd rather play video games than go to the opera. But they're also a lot more curious and they're a lot more and they're not kind of ingrained with the stories that were told over 30 or 40 years of our lives. So I think when a, someone thinks like a child, that also lends themselves to this kind of curiosity, which leads to thinking like a freak.
2: I agree. I mean, look, you know, we're talking here a lot about biases and how to, you know, override them or whatever. But, you know, let me say this. Everybody has biases. That certainly includes me. That includes Levitt. That includes you. And I, I no, would argue that one reason that probably you and I both really like the idea of thinking like a child is that you and I pretty much are children still for the most part. Um, you know, the things that we do that excite us, are the, you know, we do love to play and discovery through games and you know having new like the thrill of having new ideas so i think all of that is true about children i think it's weird and almost inexplicable how most of those traits about children magically evaporate in most people by the time they're 21 they call that curiosity and willingness to buck the trend just kind of goes away but there's also the fact that the young mind is more plastic than the older mind. And perceptually, we are constantly getting duller and duller. So we write about magic, for instance, just one example, how kids are actually better at, quote, figuring out a magic trick, if if that's the goal. That's not necessarily the goal when you watch a magician work, but if that is the goal, the kids are actually better, not only because they are perceptually sharper and cognitively a little bit more attuned, but they're also cognitively more diffuse, which is to say, Adults are great at, quote, paying attention, and what paying attention really means is like laser focusing on a task at the exclusion of everything else, and we know that that can be incredibly valuable. On the other hand, it can also be valuable to have really diffuse attention, where instead of focusing on the one thing that you think you should be focusing on, you're taking in other stuff, and so with a magician, for instance, that's what happens. The magician has an easier time fooling adults or getting them to buy the trick because they can be beautifully misdirected exactly where the magician wants them to be. So if I'm moving my one hand in a sweeping motion up, I know that the adults will follow it. If you do it for kids, though, 20 or 30 percent of them are going to like be looking at the other hand. What the hell is the other hand doing and why is it in his pocket and what's it doing right now? And so obviously... These are not good traits for, like, if you're driving, let's say, or running a nuclear reactor, but in terms of idea generation and problem solving, I think there are a lot of things that kids do that if we could smuggle those ideas into adulthood, that we'd, uh, in some cases, at least be a lot better off. Well,
0: how can we do that? How can we kind of bring this childlike thinking or at least practice it back into our lives? What's a practical uh, way to, to start doing this?
2: I think one easy part of that is to um, somehow turn off your shame uh, meter. So, you know, when you go in a business meeting, even, you know, I mean, everybody's been in this meeting where, where someone running the meeting will say, okay, remember, there are no stupid ideas, right? And then the first stupid idea that comes up, everybody kind of laughs uncomfortably and, and then someone will say, oh, well, I guess there really are stupid ideas. And that immediately kills everybody's incentive or appetite for really thinking, just actually thinking. You know, one thing that kids actually do all the time is think. And adults, you know, kind of once you get beyond the the required thinking period, which we think of as formal education, which, by the way, most of that isn't thinking either. Most of that is kind of learning a standard set of facts and figuring out how to, you know, talk them back in a way. Um, I think a lot of it is just being willing to get laughed at once in a while. I mean, if you look at, I mean, realistically, you look at the table of contents of these three Freakonomics books that we've written or basically the, the 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 title of any podcast that we've ever done, I would say that probably 50% of all that is the stuff that most people would just think, oh, my God, I'm not going to, that, that just sounds idiotic, it just sounds childish, sounds silly. And a lot of times, of course, you miss Um but, you know, um, for every ten ideas we have, probably nine of them turn out to be ridiculous. But unless you're willing to engage in that level of thinking, as childish as it may be, you may not get that, that one. So that's really – and that also leads into what we write about a lot and Think Like a Freak is about, you know, willingness to fail, the upside of quitting – um, kind of getting rid of this slavish devotion to stick things out even when they shouldn't be stuck out and so on.
0: Well, well, you know, it's, it's your last chapter of the book, actually, The Upside of Quitting. And and you point out sometimes people stick with things too much. And I, I think there's kind of a bigger picture here, which is that life is sort of short. So if you spend an extra year pursuing some business that's not working out or some idea that's not working out or a book that's not working out, that's a really long time. And you you can always make money back, but you can't ever make time back And so how do people learn how to quit faster, how to fail faster?
2: You know, I bet that a lot of people who listen to your show are way ahead on this, and that's because there is an ethos in modern business, especially smaller business, especially startups, where it's understood that failing fast is really important, failing fast and failing well. Um, So I have a feeling that the people who listen to you – are probably in relatively good shape on that. So I would argue, if not, you know, there are two really basic economic concepts to, to kind of keep in front of your face at all time. One is sunk cost, which everybody knows, you know, sunk cost is the, the money or time or effort or whatever you've put into a project or a relationship or whatever. And then related to that is the sunk cost fallacy, which is the idea that, oh, because I've invex- invested X units – it would be counterproductive to not invest, you know, 2x next year, which is not necessarily true. It's often a fallacy. And the other uh, idea to consider is one of the real basic ideas of economics generally, and not just economics, but opportunity cost. So it's hard to calculate opportunity cost. A lot of people, you know, if you say, well, I really want to get an MBA, and I can figure out what it's going to cost me in concrete costs in terms of the dollars and the time, and maybe I have to move and maybe I have to, you know, break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend temporarily. Do You know, I can calculate those concrete costs, but it's much harder, granted, to calculate the opportunity cost. If I didn't do that, if I didn't spend those two years and that $80,000 or whatever and the mental energy to move, what could I be doing instead? What would that two years produce? So I think part of it is just a conscious decision to calculate your choices In a way that includes opportunity cost more baldly.
0: You know, I I think one way to look at this is almost to pretend you're a different person and you're putting yourself in (laughs) the center of this situation midstream. So, like a common thing to do as an investment, like let's say somebody buys Apple at 500 and the Apple stock goes down to 400, they're very reluctant at that point to sell 400. But you kind of have to look at it with fresh new eyes every morning. Like, would I buy? apple at 400 instead of just hold on to it yeah that's the same that's thing a, can be applied to life situations
2: that is a great great point i hadn't thought you know the only the only related thought i've ever had to that is you know i hate shopping as i think you do too it's just you know it's not that i have no problem spending I, I love spending money on other people i don't like spending on myself for some reason and even if it's stuff that i really need i just hate having to Buy. I I, don't, I just don't like shopping. I hate the experience of being in the uh, store and all that. So thank God for um, the digital world and so on. But I do have this thing where if I'm ever thinking about buying something that is not a total essential, I just try to imagine that I'm looking at the thing in a very different setting, which is like a yard sale in suburban Connecticut, and that it was a tenth the price that it is now in the store, and ask If it was sitting there on a table at a tenth of price, do I even want this thing? And I would say that about 80% of the time, the answer is no. It's just that the person selling it has done such a fantastic job of presenting it in a way that is so seductive, including maybe the high price tag, that it persuades me that I do want it. So I I think that's a great idea. It's just like if you can either throw your mind out of your own brain or – your mind out of context when you're making a decision I I think that's a great suggestion James
0: well you know another thing I want to cover is you have this great story about David Lee Roth and M&Ms and uh, maybe describe that story and it's it's actually incredibly related and again in a way to marketing that I don't know if you uh, have looked into but what's the David Lee Roth technique in terms of thinking like a freak
2: so, I should say, this is David Lee Roth's claim of David Lee Roth's technique, which he's very um, adamant in claiming, in it, and it sounds 100% legit, and I, I can't vouch that it worked exactly as he describes it, but the argument is this. When they, when Van Helms started, when they got really big and started doing these really, really, really big road shows, so, you know, you're traveling around, you're showing up in a different city every couple nights or every night, whatever, and in these days, um, the rock touring business was a little bit different. You were more reliant on the promoter to provide more stuff. You didn't travel with all the stage and lighting and gear. Some of it, you know, was, was provided by a promoter. And so if you wanted to know, <clears throat> you wanted to make sure that they had done everything right, that everything was safe, um, had been set up properly, that you had enough power, et cetera, et cetera. So what you do is, in advance, your booking agent and you, the band, and your production company, you send out a contract that con- that, that sets down the date, and then a rider. And a rider, if you're ever looking at any kind of performance rider, can often be pretty extensive. In this case, Van Halen's had a lot of information about their technical requirements so that the show could work and be safe and so on. But... He, David Lee Roth, and Van Halen were looking for a way to make sure that the promoters actually read the writer carefully so that when they would get to the city and get ready to load in and set up, they'd know that the important stuff was done well. But how could you know the important stuff was done well? If you say to the promoter, hey, did you read the writer carefully and do everything, of course they're going to say yes. So according to David Lee Roth and Van Halen legend, he devised a test, a very simple and brilliant test, which involved M&M's. So in the rider, which included the security and technical specs, there was also the specs for what food and drinks um, and other accoutrements the band was to be provided. And in it, it said – and actually the food requests weren't that fancy or specific. It was like on certain days it should be either fried chicken or lasagna and whatnot. But then there was one thing that was weirdly specific, which was M&M's, said so there should be a bowl of M&M's backstage – but no brown ones, brown ones not allowed. So this was interpreted as just a sign of what prima donnas they were, that, you know, they just, they, either they they had some history with brown M&Ms maybe, or that they just liked to torture the poor caterers to pick out the brown ones. And that was the way it was seen. But in fact, according to David Lee Roth, at least, it was designed as a test. And it was designed as a test in that when they would show up at a city, it was an easy signal to read. You'd go backstage, you'd see the M&M bowl. If the brown M&Ms had not been removed, you could have a pretty high degree of confidence that this multi-page rider had not been carefully read and followed, and therefore you might have bigger problems to worry about. So it's, you know, it's a canary in a coal mine idea. And we write about this in a chapter in Think Like a Freak called What Do King Solomon and David Lee Roth Have in Common? And we include a lot of examples of where... When you want to know the truth, it's often hard because people have the incentive to not tell you the full truth. So how can you, as we put it, kind of teach your garden to weed itself? How can you get the bad guys or the people who are not being truthful to reveal that they're not being truthful? And the M M&M story is, is, you know, one of the best in there. And, you know,
0: it's related to marketing in that there's a concept called the the long sales letter. That if you write a really, really long sales yeah. letter, almost too long, then you're weeding out. By the end, you're left with the people who are going to simply buy. And, you know, it's a similar type of technique. And you, you refer to that in a different way with the Nigerian letter. Like the Nigerian, you know, kind of 419 scams, which are so stupid that if someone actually responds to them, they have almost qualified themselves that they're stupid enough to fall for the scam.
2: Yeah, what you're doing there is you're trying to identify what's an unobservable trait. The unobservable trait you're looking for is gullibility. So it turns out that anyone who gets a Nigerian scam letter and doesn't think it's a scam is perhaps in the right realm of gullibility that you can actually then follow up with them and get them to deposit, you know, $20,000 in your Nigerian bank account.
0: So, so, Sia, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really, uh, you know, I think I think, think Like a Freak is actually the best of the three books because I, I love Freakonomics and I love Super Freakonomics, but this one really tells you how I can be, how I can think like a freak. I mean, you're, you know, chapter titles like The Upside of Quitting, How to Persuade People Who Don't Want to Be Persuaded. Uh, you know, you list, you know, all the different ways to, to think like a freak. You have the chapter, Think Like a Child. Uh, so I just think this is a great book. I hope everyone buys it. I hope you come on the show again and we talk more about it. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on now. And I'm, I'm sure you're busy pro- out there promoting the book, which is being released essentially today. So- well,
2: um, thanks a million. It's, I love talking to you and hanging out with you. Thanks for having me on your show. And um, I just want to say the next time we play backgammon, the outcome will not be what it was the last time. All right, that's my I,
0: I don't know about that because I'm you. getting better every single day.
2: <laughs> All right, James. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Bye.
1: Until recently, I thought James Altucher was full of it. I mean, he's written about how he screwed Yasser Arafat out of $2 million why we should all be thankful he single-handedly saved wall street and even how he tried to move into a homeless shelter just so he could meet women. That all changed when I met him. Every story James has written about is both true and fascinating. He's certainly one of a kind and he's worth getting to know for a limited time. James is offering his ebook, choose yourself stories for free. You'll laugh and you might even cry either way you'll identify with many of his ups and downs in life. James holds nothing back. So right now, go claim your copy of his book for free at StansberryRadioChooseYourself.com. That's StansberryRadioChooseYourself.com. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at StansberryRadio.com. And get yourself on the free insider's list today.